looking, throwing in the end zone. Montana, touchdown, John Taylor. Young to the air, young to Jerry Rice. Touchdown, San Francisco. Young stumbles on the way back and fires up the middle. Pass is caught by Owens. Hello and welcome to this episode of the 49ers Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and this is your source for the most objective 49ers discussion and analysis, plus timely and entertaining sports and pop culture topics. And today, we're going to be talking about the 49ers 28-16 victory over the Seahawks. We're going to go over stats from the game, additional stats to know, talk about how this is another game where the 49ers started out relatively slow in the first quarter. I want to talk about Shanahan's gaffe at the end of the first half, the defense gaining momentum the last three quarters, how the 49ers star players showed out, Mitch Wisnowski's fake punt, want to give a nod to that, and injuries and roster notes. In the plus section, three games that caught my eye, the Ravens defeating the Rams in overtime, the Bills over the Chiefs, and the Cowboys stomping on the Eagles. Also briefly going to talk about Shohei Otani's 10-year, $700 million contract with the Dodgers. And the video game Doom, it was its 30th anniversary this past weekend. One of the foremost first-person shooting games. So I want to talk about its legacy since coming out 30 years ago. But like always, it starts with the 49ers. So let's get right into it. Let's talk Niners. So the 49ers 12-point win, I was pretty close. I said 27-17 to San Francisco. Betters who took the 49ers are happy. The spread was, I think, 10.5 or 11. The Niners win by 12. So if you took the Niners laying the points, congratulations. Let's go over some overall stats from the game. Total yards, Niners put up over 500, 527 to be exact to 324. For Seattle, turnovers two apiece. First downs 19 to 17 in favor of the 49ers. And time of possession actually for Seattle by a minute and a half. Brock Purdy threw for 368 yards, two touchdowns, one interception. Drew Locke filling in for an injured Geno Smith was pretty good. 269, two touchdowns, and two interceptions. On the ground, McCaffrey 16 rushes for 145 yards. Jordan Mason, 4 for 20. As a team, 23 rushes, 173 yards, and two touchdowns. For the Seahawks, Zach Charbonnet led the way 9 for 44. As a team, they ran it 20 times for 70 yards. Kenneth Walker was active, but did not make that big of an impact running the ball for the Seahawks. Receiving Debo, 7 for 149. Ayuk, 6 for 126. And Kittle, 3 for 76. And a touchdown. For the Seahawks, Tyler Lockett, 6 for 89. DK Metcalf, 2 for 52. And a touchdown. And basically that was all done the first drive or the first quarter as he was shut out after quarter number one. So now some stats to know. And these are probably at least this first one. I think you guys are going to know the 49ers sweep Seattle this year. They have swept the season series with the Seahawks in back-to-back years. And they've won five straight games Overall, against Seattle, including last year's wild card victory. For the offense, 527 total yards was the most this season. 
and the most since 2019, that wild game at New Orleans against the Saints, which the Niners won. Second to last play of the game was George Kittle dragging uh, three or four defenders downfield, converting on a fourth down and setting up Robbie Gold for the game-winning field goal. And 9.9 yards per play was the highest since 2012. And funny enough, that was a game against the Bills where Alex Smith uh, was the quarterback. And that was a game where I think they might have thrown for 250 and ran for 250 or even more than that. It was, it was a crazy game where they obliterated Buffalo. And that 9.9 yards per play really were a result of the explosive plays. The 72-yard run that McCaffrey had to start the game. Big pass to Debo Samuel. Uh, 45 or 50-plus yards to Debo for a touchdown. 40-plus yarder to Kittle for a touchdown. And some big passes to Brandon Ayuk, including one in the second half that he fumbled down the sideline, which could have set the 49ers up for another score. So not just your traditional chipping away, running the ball, throwing the short to intermediate, mixing in some long shots, but converting on the long shots, converting on the big explosive plays, had that yards per play close to nearly 10, which is really unheard of uh, during a game for most offenses. It looked good from the jump, right? It looked really good. Niners got the ball. First play from scrimmage, McCaffrey goes 72 yards down to the Seahawk three-yard line. Jordan Mason filling in for, once again, injured Eli Mitchell, takes the carry in for a three-yard touchdown. And less than a minute into the game, the 49ers are up 7-0. But Seattle responds. Their first drive, when they get the ball, they go six plays, 75 yards, and 419, capped off by a 31-yard touchdown pass from Drew Locke to DK Metcalf down the left-hand sideline. Ambry Thomas was in coverage, did not play it badly, might have gotten his head and, and arm around a fraction of a second late, but he was on Metcalf. Metcalf makes the touchdown, we are tied at seven. And the reason why Ambry Thomas was on Metcalf, Charvarius Ward leaves this game early with a groin injury. More on that in the injury section later on. But for the most part, once Ambry Thomas got out of the first quarter, he and the defense both settled down and really shut out Metcalf. So it's 7-7. Next couple drives for each team were punts. Then the Seahawks go on a seven-play, 50-yard drive that takes up 352, capped off by a 40-yard field goal. So now Seattle's up 10-7. to And I started to wonder this week, which maybe is the reason why I picked the Niners to win, we'll say only by 10 points, and by my prediction not covering the spread, which they ultimately did, was there a letdown? Were the Niners disinterested in some way? Maybe that's the wrong word. Maybe that's a word that I'll use to describe myself. This was a game more or less throughout, or once it got a little bit hairy at 10 to 7, I put my phone down, but I found myself on my phone quite a bit in the first half, and I think that was aided by the fact 
that McCaffrey goes 72 yards on the first play. Mason caps it off with a three-yard touchdown after that, and it's 7-0 immediately. You thought, okay, the, you know, Seattle, no Geno Smith. They were handled at home on Thanksgiving night. This is just going to be more of the same. But it wasn't. So I don't want to say the Niners were disinterested. Was I into this game from the jump the way that I was into the Eagle game? No. And, and that might be very fair for a lot of people out there listening. The Eagle game was a have-to-have-it game. This game was also. This game was also because of what it meant to the number one seed and potential home field advantage. But knowing they've won four in a row against Seattle, how they handled them without an offensive touchdown... At home on Thanksgiving night, you just thought, okay, the Niners are going are gonna to kind of walk through this. The first quarter, it felt like after that first play, that first two-play drive, they were sleepwalking. And credit Seattle, you know, what they were doing. If you listen to the, to the um, game, you heard Greg Olson say, you know, they were playing, you know, one of their safeties down as a robber, not a robber coverage. So he wasn't actually covering anybody, but waiting for those in-breaking routes and laying hits on Ayuk and Kittle and not giving those between the number throws to San Francisco so easy that they received very easily last week against the Eagles and yes I know the Eagles linebackers you know were out and you know they still got stomped by 23 points but once Shanahan made the adjustment to throwing outside the numbers more taking more shots downfield then Seattle had to back off Seattle couldn't drop a a safety down as frequently as they did in the first quarter through the rest of the game and that opened up the 49ers offense and even the running game I mean obviously McCaffrey had that big run that big 72 yard run otherwise he ran it 15 times for 73 yards which is still nearly five yards a carry so yes, that huge run inflates his yards per carry because he was he was about eight eight to nine yards. I'm just looking at the 16 for 145 and doing the math in my head. Probably close to eight and a half or nine yards a carry. But even if you take that big run out, they were still getting, we'll call it a chunk play with a run. If you can get anywhere between five and ten yards on a run, that that's a chunk play run. Uh, and Shanahan was dialing it up pretty well. Now, the one curious thing that winds up happening at the end of the half, and the announcers were on it as well. So San Francisco was up 14 to 10. Seattle had the ball at their own nine-yard line about a minute to go. About a minute to go. Drew Locke gets called for an illegal forward pass which would have been a five-yard penalty, but since they were at the nine, it was half the distance to the goal line, so that was taken back to about the five-yard line. It's a loss of down, so now it's second and 14, and a 10-second runoff. What's interesting, so even I was, I'm mean, not even I, I'm not an NFL head coach, I don't know the rules as well as uh, head coaches and assistant coaches and, and maybe some players do, but when the offense makes a play like that under two minutes, there's a 10-second runoff. And Seattle, it was Pete Carroll who decided to take the runoff, and I think it was either going from 45 to 35 seconds. It's interesting how the other team, now that, that runoff 
didn't help San Francisco because now it's second down and 14 from the five. If they had declined, if San Francisco had the ability to, to decline the runoff, which they did not, it was just an off- offensive only proposition. They could have saved time to maybe get the ball back and get in field goal range. But Shanahan still had two or three timeouts remaining. Once the runoff occurred, it was, um, I don't recall if it was a live clock or whatnot, but it was a handoff to Zach Charbonnet for two, two yards. Now you're looking at third down and 12 and Shanahan just let the time go and just kept again, two or three. I don't remember how many timeouts they had in their pocket. And this is the antithesis of how Shanahan really plays. If you listen to the podcast, you know that I say sometimes he plays aggressive to borderline reckless and occasionally stupid. I'll say rare. I can't say occasionally. Rarely stupid. But when you have a team backed up, and let's say you take the timeout. You take a timeout. Now there's maybe 30 seconds left. I'm trying to remember this correctly. I think there might have been 35 seconds Hand off to Charbonnet, 30 seconds. You call a timeout. It's third down and 12 from Seattle's own seven. Yet maybe they try to throw the ball to pick up the first down. Or maybe they hand the ball off, let San Francisco use their second or final timeout. Again, not sure if they had two or three left. But it could have been, let's say they hand off, 25 seconds left. They punt. You get the ball back maybe with 15 seconds to go. And the Seahawks have a good punter. The Niners might have gotten the ball back somewhere between their 40 and, and maybe midfield. You have maybe one play to get into field goal range and, and maybe you know give Moody a shot from you know between 55 and 60. After the game, Shanahan said that he was confused about the rule and they were going back and forth about you know what is it? Should they use a timeout or not? Um, and it was the confusion that ultimately led Shanahan to just run the clock out. But again, now I, again, you've been listening to the podcast. I'm conservative by nature. So there is the small piece of me that says, all right, you're up 14, 10. You don't want to risk a punt return fumble and give Seattle maybe a scoop and as rare as that would be, or even just a muffed punt. Seattle gets the ball. They're in Hail Mary territory. We're able to convert you know, a long field goal by, by their kicker, Jason Myers. So I get that letting the clock run out and not using timeouts guarantees you're going into the half with the lead, but Seattle was getting the ball to start the third quarter and all things being equal. You could have had Ronnie Bell fair catch the ball. You could have had Ronnie Bell just move away from the punt return altogether. And the way that Seattle was kicking punts, they were angling them to the sidelines. Anyways, there was a good chance that Seattle would have wanted to limit any sort of return, but curious how they, they could, they left around 20 seconds on the clock, which even if they got the ball back at their own 40, they could have had one play to the middle of the field. If they got it deep enough, complete it, spike it, and then either try Hail Mary or a field goal only up four, knowing your team is getting the ball back to start the second half to me would have thought it would have made Shanahan want to maximize another possession and try to steal three points. Because remember, too, what was big, um, illegal forward passes, loss of down. So again, that two or three timeouts that San Francisco had gave them technically another timeout, even though it was a 10-second runoff. It at least burned a down. You burn a down and back the offense up, similar to um, 
intentional grounding. But just, I mean, it all worked out, right, 28 to 16, but just curious how that just seemed like a very common sense situation. You're, you know, your opposing team backed up inside their 10 with timeouts in your pocket to attempt to get the ball back again. Just very, very curious. So now let's flip it around to the defense, how they gained momentum. Give Drew Locke and the Seattle Seahawks offense credit, especially in the first quarter. They moved the ball. They let Locke throw. They let Locke cook, if you want to say that. And he threw a really nice pass to DK Metcalf down the left sideline for a touchdown to initially tie the game. They didn't play with any fear. They were more explosive offensively than with Geno Smith. On Thanksgiving, granted, Geno was nursing an inflamed elbow tendon, so he wasn't 100%. But Drew Locke hasn't gotten a ton of playing time. And Pete Carroll going into the game saying he's or said that Locke is as ready as he was going to be, being the backup and getting backup reps, but did get first team reps this week leading up to the game. And Geno Smith was a game time decision, was out on the field, you know, three to four hours before the game was throwing, trying to, to move and throw. And, and it was deemed that he couldn't adequately protect himself. So Locke got the start. But after that first quarter, in total, because they didn't get to lock in the first quarter, I don't believe, four sacks by the defense, one and a half by Bosa, one by Cleland Farrell, one by Randy Gregory, and a half a sack by Javon Kinlaw. Two interceptions, one by Jair Brown, which was an ill-advised throw, I believe, in the third quarter. It was more or less like a jump ball that uh, the receiver wasn't ready for. And Fred Warner making the interception, pitching it to Dre Greenlaw. And then that's when the melee ensued. Pushing, shoving, Metcalf ejected. This was in the fourth quarter. And uh, Diamandor Lenore ejected as well. And these melees, just, they're amusing to me. Again, right? I know it's your, like, just big, strong, testosterone-infused, you know, alpha males that, you know, are going at each other. But what, what are you really hoping to accomplish in, you know, a football melee? People are wearing helmets, shoulder pads, Pads on their legs. I mean, you'd have to punch someone. It'd have to be like a body blow, like in boxing. I mean, you can't even kick anybody in the nuts. They're wearing cups, right? Like, I mean, where are you going to hit somebody that you're actually going to do damage? The pushing, you know, if you want to like push someone and walk away just to, you know, get, you know, vent some anger or something, that's fine. But what Metcalf did, you know, the grabbing of the face mask, you know, any sort of cheap shots people are saying, oh, Fred Warner, you know, that was a cheap shot on DK Metcalf. The way that Metcalf kind of threw him to the ground after he pitched the ball to Metcalf, uh, to Dre Greenlaw, excuse me, that was a little excessive. A little push on the back afterwards, I'm not really going to get so worried about. And then what, De I think Diamondor Lenore actually wound up throwing a punch. It wasn't him coming to Fred Warner's rescue during Metcalf holding his um, uh, face mask. I think he wound up kind of throwing a punch before that. But again... What are you guys hoping to accomplish? This isn't like baseball. You can really get into a good brawl in baseball. Hockey, you see everybody throwing the sticks down, throwing the gloves down, throwing punches. Remember that Nintendo game, Blades of Steel? When you used to fight, the loser of the fight would go in the penalty box. That was awesome. There's no there's no winners in when it comes to NFL melees because people are all padded up. The only thing that makes sense, and I don't condone this at all, and it was terrible, was what Miles Garrett did you know, a couple of years ago, taking, you know, Steelers quarterback Mason Rudolph's helmet out and off and using it as a weapon. That's the only, 
It's the only way you're going to inflict any damage. He was an asshole for doing it. And again, I don't condone it. It was a dick move, but that's the only way. Or you maybe take your cleat off and, and like try to stab somebody with it. I don't know. But otherwise, just this pushing, grabbing, like, it's JV shit and it, it doesn't really matter. Again, like, just a big, strong shove to the chest, walk away, get your anger out, and live for the next play. The defense only allowed six points for the last three quarters. And that was a, that was a really well-designed touchdown pass. And it was something the Niners ran last year. Uh, fake to the running back to the left, fake to the wide receiver screen to the right, and then they got it to the tight end down the middle for a touchdown. Really, really well-designed play. Seattle went for two to try to get it to a 21-18 game, but couldn't, so 21-16. So defense only allowed one scoring drive the rest of the way. And that was because the Niners' offense showed out. You know, remember in the 90s, the Cowboys were called the triplets. They're big three players, Troy Aikman, Michael Irvin, and Emmett Smith. Well, it may be a bit of hyperbole to say that 40, the 49ers have quintuplets, but let's roll with that. And they showed out. Purdy at quarterback, 389, two touchdowns and a pick. McCaffrey at running back, 153 all-purpose yards. Debo at receiver, 149 and a touchdown. Ayuk at receiver, 126 yards. Kittle at tight end, 76 and a touch. For Purdy, it was his seventh straight game with a 70% or higher completion percentage. The longest streak for a 49er since Joe Montana did it in 1989, and he had eight straight games. And he's the and Purdy's the fourth quarterback in NFL history with seven straight games with a 70% or higher completion percentage. More stats to know. Debo Samuel. He's been in the league since 2019. This is his fifth year. His 19 rushing touchdowns are an NFL record for a wide receiver, which the game has changed a lot now compared to, uh, you know, even 10 years ago, but 20, 30, 40 years ago, and especially the way Shanahan uses Debo. It's a lot different than really any other coach uses the wide receiver. So, you know, you saw Debo get kind of like that uh, handoff at the one-yard line, and he kind of walked in, but he also gets traditional handoffs from shotgun. Historically, it's really only been end-arounds, receivers in motion, jet sweeps, um, where receivers were getting handoffs, and it wasn't happening really in the red zone or inside the 10. It was happening usually between the 20s as ways to get, get space offensively and get yardage and obviously some misdirection. Shanahan has flipped the script on that and is using Debo at in any part in the field uh, in, in ways that are non-traditional for wide receivers to line up. And his running mate, Brandon Ayuk, this game, and it's game 11, reached 1,000 yards on the season, and it's the he has gone back-to-back 1,000-yard -back seasons. He is only the fourth 49er receiver in history to have back-to-back 1,000-yard -back uh, seasons, excuse me, joining Jerry Rice, Terrell Owens, and Anquan Bolden in the 2014 season. So it's been nine years. And offensively, the Niners could be on pace for a 4,000-yard quarterback, a 1,000-yard running back, which they have already in McCaffrey, 
and 3,000-yard receivers, Ayuk's there, Kittle and Debo. I think Debo's about 270 yards away and and uh, Kittle around you know thereabouts as well. So if they can average 78 to 80 yards a game, they will do something that hasn't been seen since Peyton Manning's Colts, which I believe was Manning, Edgerin James, Dallas Clark, Marvin Harrison, and Reggie Wayne at receiver. This is an explosive... If you think highly of those offenses... Uh, in the, what was it, the early 2000s that the Colts had, and Peyton Manning was obviously the the ringleader of that, you'd have to think nearly as highly of the 49ers offense. Granted, this is, you know, 15 to 20 years later where it's much easier for offenses to throw the ball. And if the Niners do get there and one of their receivers or Purdy needs game 17, to either hit the 4,000 or 1,000-yard mark, then it should come with an asterisk, right? Let's just be fair. Other The, the Colts did this in a 16-game season. We'll see if the Niner players can do that before they hit game 17. Now, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about Mitch Wisnowski's fake punt that went for 30 yards. Called back because receiver Ronnie Bell blocked below the waist, and that is a penalty, but a you know, upon review, it did look like he was trying to come back and make a block or at least get in the way. Winds up slipping. The Seahawk player falls over him. The play winds up coming back. There was also a penalty on Seattle. Uh, winds up canceling itself out, and it was a do-over, and Wisnowski on the do-over wound up punting away. Kyle Shanahan was asked after the game, was that designed? And he's like, nope, it wasn't. I want to talk to Mitch to see what he saw. And I think most, if not all teams, you know, special teams, have a, they give the punter the green light if they see a certain lineup where they think they can get the first down. Now, Wisnowski picked up 30 yards. He got clocked at 20 miles an hour, which is pretty fast for an NFL player, especially fast for a punter. And it could have given the Niners, you know, additional momentum to really put the nail in the coffin. Uh, but between that, between Brandon Ayuk's fumble in the either third or, or early fourth, I think it might have been the fourth quarter at that point, the Niners had opportunities to extend their lead and get into the 30s. You know, but as it stood, a 28 to 16 victory against a division rival who is now six and seven, along with the Los Angeles Rams. We're going to get into that into the plus section. So the Niners are four games up and can clinch the NFC West with either a victory this upcoming weekend against the Cardinals, or if the Rams or Seahawks both lose. Lastly, injuries mentioned it. Starting cornerback Charvarius Ward left the game with a groin injury. Defensive tackle Javon Hargrave left with a hamstring injury. I'm recording this on Monday, so in the coming days, if not later today, we'll know more about the these injuries. Oren Burks injured his knee. He did not return, but Shanahan said he could have played if needed, but he was replaced on some snaps by Demetrius Lanigan-Fowles and rookie D. Winters. Gre- J- uh, excuse me, Dre Greenlaw went out with a hip injury, but did come back in, and this was already a defense 
without Eric Armstead dealing with a foot and knee injury, who's going to be out probably against the Cardinals as well. We'll see if he can come back for the Christmas night game against the Ravens. And one roster signing of note or agreement, which is a good one if he stays healthy, cornerback Jason Verrett apparently has agreed to sign with the 49ers practice squad, which would be welcome news. One, because when healthy, he is a good player. It's just that caveat of when healthy. And if Charvarius Ward misses time, that gives the 49ers some extra depth that they can call up. The Niners already have six cornerbacks on the roster. All six were active, I believe, for this game. So depth-wise on their 53, they're still okay. But having a veteran like Verrett, who is familiar with the team, the players, the defense that's being called could help Diamador Lenore stay outside. Actually, he was outside anyway with Ambry Thomas, but could get Isaiah Oliver potentially off the field if Ferret moves in as the slot. Just coming up to speed with the team this week, I, I don't know if they're going to give him that responsibility immediately, but we'll see. It is a nice option to have, and he'll get in a couple practices before they have to leave for Arizona on Saturday. So that concludes the 49ers section of the podcast. Stay with us though. We are going to be going over three NFL games, the Ravens beating the Rams, the Bills over the Chiefs, and the Cowboys over the Eagles. We're going to be talking about Shohei Otani's massive contract with the Dodgers, and we're going to be talking video games, the first person shooter Doom's 30th anniversary, and what that meant for the first person shooter category. Stick around. It's plus time. So the Ravens needed overtime to fend off the pesky Rams, beating them 37 to 31. Rams were game, all game, and it was a back and forth game. The Rams tied it at 31 on a field goal with seven seconds left. And then unfortunately, at least for them, they lose the game in overtime on a 76-yard punt return by Ravens receiver Tylon Wallace. Both teams' offenses came to play. They both went over 400 yards. Baltimore had a turnover, Rams with none, and the Rams owned a seven-minute time of possession advantage at Baltimore. Matt Stafford of the Rams went for 294 and three touchdowns. Lamar Jackson, 316, three touchdowns and an interception, and ran it 11 times for 70 yards as teams both teams ran for over 125 yards and this was a game that I think I mean was obviously a lot closer than than people think the thought would be the Ravens have a very good defense that Stafford and company just exploited wide receiver Puka Nakua already over a thousand yards wide receiver Cooper Cup went over 100 yards this game the Rams are playing I don't want to say above their heads, but I will say Sean McVay is getting the absolute most out of this team. The thought that they would win six games all season, and they're standing at six and seven now, would have been unheard of for a lot of folks, especially with the defections they had on the defensive side of the ball. The O-line has been somewhat shaky. You didn't know what you were going to get out of Puka Nakua. 
the running back situation, how was Stafford going to bounce back from injury, and outside of Aaron Donald, can your average football fan name anybody else on that Rams defense? And Donald's a good one, but they are playing team football in the most literal sense of the phrase, and kudos to Sean McVay for keeping this team engaged. And they are in the thick of the playoff hunt. They, The last game of the season, they are at San Francisco, and that could be a game that the Niners need to clinch home field advantage, and that could be a game that the Rams need to get into a wild card. So again, feisty, feisty team. They're playing really well and explosive at times on offense, and they have a pesky defense. Well, you know, they let up, well, they let up 31 points. The, the special teams let up the last six. So the Ravens got all they can handle from a very game Rams team. Same could be said for the Bills going into Kansas City. This is a game that I thought that the Chiefs would win, but a game that the Bills needed much more, and they came away with a 20-17 victory. Buffalo had an 11-minute time of possession advantage. We're going to get into why in a second. Let's start with the quarterbacks. Josh Allen, 233 yards, one touchdown, one interception. Mahomes, 271 with a touchdown and an interception. And this is a game that the Bills got off to a 14 to nothing quick start. The Chiefs tied it at 14 in the third quarter. The Bills, for, for the Bills anyway, ran the ball pretty well. 29 rushes for 118 yards and a touchdown. The Chiefs without Isaiah Pacheco, and this could have been different with him. 18 rushes for 82 yards and a touchdown. James Cook, running back James Cook on the Bills, the difference difference maker. He had a great game, 10 rushes for 58 yards, five receptions for 83 yards and a touchdown. Uh, New offensive coordinator, I think, is helping the Bills be a little bit more balanced. You would think a Bills-Chiefs game would have been a shootout. But 29 rushes on the ground is what helped, and sustaining drives was what helped the Bills get that 11-minute time of advantage. Receivers, Kelsey, 6 for 83. Rasheed Rice, 7 for 72. uh, And a touchdown, I believe. Uh, And what this game came down to at the end with the Chiefs driving, Mahomes completes a pass to Travis Kelsey, Draws the defenders to him as he's running downfield. Passes behind him and across his body to wide receiver Kadarius. Tony who takes it in for a touchdown with a minute 12 left. But Kadarius Tony lined up offsides before the play. And after that, the Chiefs could not convert on fourth down, giving it back to the Bills. After the game, Andy Reid uh, was not happy about the call. Patrick Mahomes was completely heated about that call, throwing his helmet, complaining to Josh Allen after the game, which to me was a bad look. I mean, it was a blatant offsides by Kadarius Toney. I've seen the replay. You can see it with the blue line where the line of scrimmage is. The reason why it doesn't get called a lot, Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes, is because it doesn't happen a lot. And when it gets called, it's because it's egregious. And Tony was in the slot. You could see him looking at the center. All receivers and linemen, well, especially linemen on the other team, are looking at the ball. When an, when a defensive lineman jumps off sides, like literally jumps, trying to guess the snap count, to me that's pretty bad because you're looking at the ball. 
You shouldn't move until you see the ball snapped. When you line up offsides, when you line up in the neutral zone, offensively or defensively, that's even worse because you know where the ball is and you're looking to your left or right down the line of scrimmage to see, you know, where's the ball, where's my hand, guessing where your helmet is to stay out of the neutral zone. Kadarius Tony had, you know, issues with drops. He's had issues with staying healthy. Now he lined up offsides. It was egregious. It was the right call. And for Mahomes to say, you can't make that call that late in the game, let players decide the games. Yes, I agree. And Kadarius Tony, unfortunately, decided the game because he didn't line up six inches back, a foot back, and he had a clear view to the ball. I understand, you know, John Madden used to say you can call holding on every play, offensive holding, but you really only call the most egregious ones. One, this hardly ever happens, and it only gets called when it's egregious because it's so rare, and he made it obvious for the official. doesn't matter that you're at home, and it doesn't matter that, you know, Mahomes is used to getting a lot of calls and home cooking and Super Bowl cooking and stuff like that. It was the right call. Shut up. And as a team, you got to learn to just play a little bit better. Sunday night game, Cowboys 33, Eagles 13. All Niner fans should have been Cowboy fans last night. Seeing people on Twitter saying, oh, no matter what happens, I know the stakes. I can't root for the Cowboys. You're a moron. Got to root for the Seahawks this week also because now they're playing the Eagles. And I think the Cowboys and Seahawks are the two teams right now that I dislike the most. I have no problem rooting for them when it helps the Niners and playoff positioning and getting the number one seed. Moronic. Now, Dallas, I mean, they won by 20. They had, a, you know, an advantage in total yards by 70. Eagles turned it over three times. Dallas only once. You're not going to win with that. Dallas had seven more first downs and a 13-minute more advantage in time of possession. Dak went for 271 and two touchdowns. Hurts, 197 yards, no TDs. Five designed runs for 30 yards. Running the ball, Dallas as a team, 32 for 138 and one score. Philly, 23 for 106. Dallas never trailed. They were up 10-0 at the end of the first quarter, up 24-6 at the half. The only touchdown Philly had was at 24-6. Dak was sacked, lost the ball, scooped up by rookie Jalen Carter to make it 24-13 and sort of a game. So based on what I said, I think everyone can infer and realize the Eagles did not score an offensive touchdown. The Eagles got back Dallas Goddard at tight end. They have Devonta Smith. They have A.J. Brown. They have Swift, uh, Devonta Smith, excuse me. They have Swift at running back. They have weapons and a so-called MVP candidate in Jalen Hurts. Dallas has a good defense, a top three, top five defense in a lot of categories. They shut down the Eagles. And if you want to say it's fatigue, they've played a lot of tough games recently. Listen, this is the NFL. Even cupcakes in some ways are tough because you're getting tackled. You're getting blocked. You're getting hit almost every play. So I don't want to hear about the fatigue aspect. And now they got to travel cross country and play a Seahawks team with either Drew Locke or Geno Smith, not sure yet, and probably won't know until maybe Friday or Saturday who the quarterback's going to be. Eagles got to get up for that one. 
Eagles got to get up for that one. Is it safe to say right now that the Eagles are probably the third best team in the conference? San Francisco beat both teams handily, so we have to put them number one, and they are the number one seed. Right now, the Cowboys are leading the East, and the Eagles are the five seed. They are a wild card, but you heard it explained last night that if the Eagles win out, they will win the NFC East. And outside of the Seahawks game, they have the Giants twice and another easy team, I forget what. Whereas the Cowboys go to Buffalo, at least this upcoming week, they have Detroit in Dallas. They have some tough games. Niners, Cowboys, Eagles, Lions is how I would rate the teams in the NFC. And did the Niners, I don't know if the Niners exposed the Eagles, but the Niners had, uh, the Eagles had difficulty with three teams with really good defenses, Jets, Cowboys, Niners, and they could not stop two teams, the Niners and the Cowboys, with really explosive offenses. Not going to say the Eagles are a fraud. You don't win 10 games by accident. But I think it's time for people to slow their roll a bit on the Eagles. And of course, Jalen Hurts is completely out of the MVP uh, discussion, as he should have been even two or three weeks ago anyway. So let's transition from football now to baseball. Shohei Otani, formerly of the Angels signed with the Dodgers, so he doesn't really have to move at all. A 10-year massive $700 million contract. He will be 30 years old in July. He injured his elbow ligament similar to Brock Purdy of the 49ers. He did not have full-blown Tommy John surgery. He did have the UCL brace procedure that Brock Purdy did have. He's probably not pitching this season, but could pitch again without any setbacks in 2025. So he will be basically the designated hitter for the Dodgers. Now, when it was announced, 10 years, 700 million, people thought around the league he would get between 500 and 600 million dollars. The fact that he got 700 took, you know, the Angels off the table, certainly. The Mets, who knows how serious they were. The San Francisco Giants, the same. But Otani had the idea of deferring most of his contract to beyond the 10-year mark, which helps the Dodgers significantly from a luxury tax standpoint. If we want to just cut it in half, say he is on the books for $35 million a year. And I don't think it's going to be that clear cut that it'll be 35 per year. That will still put the Dodgers into the luxury tax, but the cost payment wouldn't be so prohibitive. And it hasn't come out how much is being deferred and for how long. This is obviously similar to to folks that are Met fans out there, like how Bobby Bonilla is still getting paid a little over a million dollars every, I think it's July 1st, from the Mets, and he hasn't played with the team in over 20 years. Shohei Shohei Otani is 30 years old. His contract will end when he's 40. He may be getting payments of, even if it's $35 million until he's 50, 10 years after, or they could break it up and pay him for 20 years, $17.5 million a year after his contract is up. 
I don't know how I feel about this deferred contracts in baseball. If this is something that should be allowed, it was creative and it was something that Shohei Otani himself recommended. And he wanted to play for the Dodgers. He wanted to play for a winner after so many years toiling with the Angels and Mike Trout, not getting anywhere to sniffing the World Series or a ring. So he got the best of both worlds. He got his money. He got in a creative way. And he got a chance to play for a World Series and not handicap the Dodgers where they cannot make any other moves. However much the Dodgers want to be over the luxury tax and pay additional amounts over their yearly salary or roster salary, that's up to them. But he's still giving the Dodgers a chance. Now that whole, you know, that whole deferral aspect, other teams, you know, there's other players in Major League Baseball that are taking deferred payments. And if Major League Baseball teams are were are okay with paying players past their designated contracts, not paying any more. They're just holding payments off. To me, in a weird way, this is akin to the NBA used to have poison pill contracts. I don't know if they're going to do that anymore, and I think the NFL might have tried this as well, where, let's keep it with the NBA. The NBA could sign a player, let's say a restricted free agent, to an offer sheet. And if they wanted to not give the incumbent team, the existing team, the ability to re-sign the player, let's say that the player was playing for the Knicks, They would put a clause in their contract saying, you know, contracts only, the contract is invalid if this player plays 41 games in the state of New York. So that means that's obviously all of the home games that a Nick would have. And I remember that being done, you know, I don't want to say years ago, 5, 10, maybe 15 years ago. I'm not sure if that's still in practice. It was a slippery shit way. And these are done by sports agents who are also lawyers. So they know how they can get around rules and law. Slippery way to prevent teams from upping the ante or re-signing a player that they want. To me, in a slightly different way, deferrals feel the same way. I don't know if this is ever going to go away and if the NFL will ever adopt this. And maybe NFL players are getting deferred payments. I have no idea. I have no idea. I just know when it's all said and done, I'm a big fan of a hard salary cap like the Niners, uh, like the NFL has. NHL has. Basketball does not. And baseball does not as well. And they're never going to want it. Play In baseball especially, probably basketball too, they're never going to, the players and owners are never going to agree with that. They're happy paying, you know, 10, 20, 40, 50, 70 million dollars in luxury tax penalties to put together an all-star team. But the small market teams cannot do that. And that's where competitive disadvantage is just a shame in sports like baseball and basketball and and hockey too, right? I mean, hockey's salary cap is the lowest of of the four major, you know, North American sports. And there are haves and have-nots, but at least the haves cannot go over a certain amount of money. And I think the Dodgers will still be you know, benefiting from the Otani experience. It was average that each year the Angels, when Otani was an Angel, 
were generating 10 to $20 million in additional revenue from just having Otani on the screen, whether it's on the team, whether it's sponsorships, whether it's any sort of uh, revenue coming in from, from Japan and China, from the Asian markets, what he was doing for the game day experience, jersey sales, etc. So there were some estimates that being a Dodger, because it's more of a national and certainly, well, certainly a national and in, in, in some ways a global brand, well, certainly global for where Otani comes from, that the, the Dodgers could net up to $40 million additionally in revenue per year just for having Otani on their team. So that's going to offset, again, any, uh, any of the sting of the total contract, but also in ways, you know, if they sock that money away, help on the back end when they're paying Otani, let's just call it another $350 million after his 10-year contract is up. We'll see. The Dodgers have not been able to get over the hump other than the COVID season to win the World Series. So we'll see if Otani is going to make this big of a difference. Listen, he's he's one of the three or five best power hitters in baseball, so he will certainly help in that regard. He'll be a DH. And if he can get healthy and again be a top 10-15 pitcher in baseball for them in 2025, that's where maybe you'll see the biggest impact. So now let's conclude with video games. And this was brought to my attention by a good friend of the show this past weekend. I think it was yesterday. Sunday the 10th was the video game Doom's 30th anniversary. And because of that, one of the creators of the game Doom just released a new nine-level episode excuse me, called Sigil 2 that can be played with the original game's release. And the original game has had updates since it released in 1993. But this got me thinking, you know, first-person shooters aren't my thing. I'm still playing F-099 on Switch. I'm playing games on handheld. Um, The Zelda game, uh, Breath of the Wild, still want to pick up the next one. And I'll occasionally play some, some sports games with my kids, but I do have experience with first person shooting games, but it really is, you know, back in the nineties. And it made me go back and look through some of the more famous or important first person shooters that have come out before and after doom. And doom was really the catalyst that got first person shooters on the map. The company that created doom A year before, in 1992, created a first-person shooter called Wolfenstein 3D. I remember playing this game on my PC. It might have been a Pentium 3 computer. And essentially, you are in a Nazi stronghold, and you're essentially killing Nazis. And I don't remember if if Hitler was the final end guy or whatnot. I haven't played this game, like, probably literally in, in 25 or more years. But that was... That wasn't the first specific first-person shooter game, but that was the first one that really kind of got the category on the map. And this development company followed up in the next year with Doom. And this company tried to get the Alien license, the Alien movie license, Sigourney Weaver, etc. Could not get it because they wanted to make a first-person shooter with the Alien's IP, Couldn't do it, so instead they made their own game. They made it independently, which was a good decision um, because of how much money they made off of that. And it was essentially someone, a first-person shooter 
of you destroying alien monsters. It was wildly, wildly popular. I played this as well and had it. And that spawned a ton of sequels. And it also spawned additional games, additional different IPs that wanted to cash in on this first-person shooter craze. And the next game, and I'm going to go down chronologically, 1995 Star Wars Dark Forces came out in which you are a rebel agent, you have your blaster, and you are going through the Empire just mowing down stormtroopers and ships and uh, other things, just, you know, going through the Imperial base, trying to find items, plans uh, for the Republic, or I guess the Rebellion at the time, to overthrow the Empire. Fun first-person first shooter game. And again, being a big Star Wars fan, I, you know, definitely had my hands on that. And the next, and there were sequels to Dark Forces. There was Dark Forces 2, and then they upped the ante in terms of a first-person game with Jedi Knight and Jedi Knight 2, where you control a Jedi Knight. And now you're wielding a lightsaber. You could wield a blaster as well. So it was still first-person, but you could also pull the camera back and have it be third-person as well. But that was 1995. 1996, Duke Nukem 3D came out along with Quake. Two wildly popular games, especially on PC. 1997, GoldenEye was released on the Nintendo 64. And this was a big hit with a lot of people who had the Nintendo 64. With folks that I used to know as well were huge fans. And what really got them or some of them into um, first-person shooters could not play online since it was Nintendo 64. But but this was the ultimate, you know, you have friends come over, you grab pizza, Coke, beer if you're old enough, or even, I guess, if you're not old enough, and you just have a night in someone's basement playing GoldenEye. You know, those were, and granted, I, I just was not into shooting games at that point. I really stopped with Star Wars Dark Forces, uh, but GoldenEye was a huge hit, and the momentum just continued in 1998, Unreal came out, another big hit, along with Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six and Half-Life. Three big games coming out in 1998. Again, those had sequels. 1999 introduced the Medal of Honor series of games, which was a huge hit as well. 2001, it goes to a new level with Halo. I think everybody on Xbox familiar with the Halo series. 2003, Call of Duty, massive series. 2004, Far Cry was released. 2006, Resistance, Fall of Man, which had, I think, three games, uh, came out for, I think it was just PlayStation 3. And I actually, relatively recently, let's say four or five years ago, bought Resistance 3 for PlayStation 3. Still have it sealed, never opened it, because I don't know what I was thinking, because I'm just not into first-person shooting games. 2007, the Bioshock series was released, wildly popular. 2009, Borderlands. 2014, Overwatch. And 2017, Fortnite was released. And again, I mentioned my own personal history of first-person shooters was really 92, 93, 95, Wolfenstein, Doom, and Dark uh, Forces from Star Wars. Actually, in 2000 maybe three or maybe five. I wound up buying, I think an Xbox 360 because my friends at the time were playing, I think it might've been Halo two or was a Halo three. I don't even remember how many Halos there were. 
I'm like, all right, well, they're playing online. Just be a good way to connect and kind of get into this game that my friends are playing. Couldn't get into it. And anytime that I was like, hey, anybody want to play Halo? It was a no. And then they would play and not call me, just, you know, kind of being a little weird about it. So I'm like, all right, one, no one's called me to play this game. And they know I sucked at it. So I guess that might have been the reason for it. Two, I'm just not into first-person shooters. Three, I don't have the dexterity with my thumbs to move the camera up, down, left, right, um, and then kind of move my guy, you know, north, south, east, west, whatever, uh, with my other thumb. So wound up selling my Xbox, I guess it was a 360, um, to my buddy who actually brought it to my attention about this Doom 30th anniversary this weekend for him to enjoy, because he was into shooting games and Halo, you know, games more than myself. But what winds up happening, interestingly enough, like a year or two later, in 2007, I wound up reading, um, or I'm sorry, now we're getting into, it's 2013. Well, well past that. Still have my PlayStation 3, reading, I think it was Electronic Gaming Monthly, or or maybe that was defunct by then. Um, some gaming magazine, and I was seeing pictures for a game called Bioshock Infinite which was a first-person shooting game, the third game in the Bioshock series that kind of looks like it takes place in a colonial America slash steampunk slash futuristic society. And bought the game, was immediately hooked by the story of this alternate America called Columbia and the main character searching for... And you you save her pretty early in the in the game. Uh, this damsel in distress who kind of follows you for the rest of the game. Beat the game, and the ending had things to do with time travel or different dimensional travel, where you're able to visit things that happened in Bioshock One or just Bioshock Two. I forget, but they were connecting the Bioshock series. Artistically, I'm still blown away by that game. It is one of the few games or even just things that I have an art of book. I have an art of Bioshock Infinite book. It's one of my favorite games I still have of all time. I still have it for PlayStation 3. I also have it for Nintendo Switch just because at some point my PlayStation 3 is going to go away because I think that highly of the game. Not high enough that it's going to get me in back into the first-person shooter um, uh, interest, again, I just don't want either I don't have the time or the interest. And if I'm going to go back to a first-person shooter game, honestly, I'm going to play Bioshock Infinite. I'm going to go to my computer and play Dark Forces or Dark Forces 2 because I, I wound up going on um, the website GOG and you can download retro games, computer games, really inexpensively. It's a legit site. It's not, there's Steam is another site that you can get retro computer games and download them. And it was one of the reasons why I wound up getting a gaming computer, even though those old games don't need a high-end computer to run, but between Dark Forces and Jedi Knight, um, X-Wing, where you, you're, you're an X-Wing pilot, you know, trying to defeat or shoot down TIE Fighters, then TIE Fighter, where you're a TIE Fighter pilot. Just those nostalgic games from the early to late 90s that I played a lot, just to have them on hand, should I want to revisit them, are things that I'm going to Go back to more so than any of these, you know, new games, uh, either on, you know, a PS5. You know, I may still keep playing some games on Switch because there's there's a lot of fun games that I enjoy on Switch. Um, but first-person shooters, listen, made a huge impact. 
was my cup of tea when I was younger, then kind of went away from that. But the list that I led to you, if we're starting off really in 1992 at Wolfenstein 3D, then Doom in 93, were 31 plus years of a category. And I only read off, remember, the first game in some of these series. Um, Tom Clancy, Medal of Honor, Halo, Call of Duty, Resistance, Bioshock. Fortnite hasn't had sequels. They've kind of, they update the game. They call them like episode updates or season updates where they introduce new maps. Um, and Overwatch has done that as well. So it's ways of of keeping the core game. And I think you do have to pay for the next season or maybe you don't. Again, I haven't played Fortnite. And my wife and I are, are keeping our kids away from those games. Not that we think it it's going to induce violence. They're going to become gun-wielding assholes or anything like that. They are into more sports games. They're into the Nintendo Switch. They're into the retro S Super Nintendo games. They're into what, you know, I'm into, which, which is cool. It, have they asked, like, hey, I want to play Fortnite? I'm like, yeah, but you have to play it online, and the online stuff is weird. You know, they, don't, they haven't really asked anymore. Again, I'm not a believer that, like, the, the shooting video games is going to equate to anything else later on in life when it comes to violence or, or guns or anything like that. Just not our cup of tea. My my kids have found their niches in terms of the games that they like, and all's well, I suppose, that ends well in terms of video game stuff. That concludes the 49ers section of the podcast. As always, I want to thank you for listening, for taking time out of your busy schedule to make us part of your listening routine. Much appreciated. Much appreciated again to our friend of the show who gave me some Really good and fun plus contact a content doing some research yesterday and just seeing the list of iconic first person shooter game shooting games that have made such an impact on gaming and in some ways society. And I don't mean that in a negative way, just the knee jerk. You know what these games are, even if you haven't played them, you've heard of them. You know what these games are, and that is a lasting legacy of the creators of Doom and Wolfenstein 3D. The next podcast will drop on Thursday. We'll have any housekeeping items as it pertains to the 49ers and Seahawks game. We will go into the preview of the 49ers Cardinals Sunday in Arizona. But until then, got a couple days. Everyone stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, and we will talk soon. Take care.